0: The choir of St George's Chapel Windsor Castle start us off this morning, a hymn based on words of St Francis of Assisi. All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing Alleluia. new Scottish hymns band and You're the Shepherd, We're the Sheep.
1: Bartley talks to shepherd and writer James Rebanks about trying to make ends meet on his hill farm in the Lake District. James Rebanks's family have lived and farmed
2: in the Lake District for over 600 years. His grandfather taught him to work their land in the old-fashioned way, but by the time James took over from his father modern industrial methods and economic pressures had made hill farming almost impossible. James has told the story of his farm, his family, and his renewed hope for the future in two best-selling and wonderful books, The Shepherd's Life and English Pastoral. James, you're talking to me today from your farm. In fact, I think we've just got you out of the sheep pen. (laughs) We were spreading muck here in mid-Wales yesterday. Describe your farm to me a little bit, what it looks like and the combination of animals and crops that you uh, grow.
3: Our farm is 1,100 foot up in the valley of Matterdale. It's pretty much, most of it, apart from a few hay meadows in the valley bottom, around sort of 45 degree slant. It's, today it's basically silver because we're in the middle of this really hard frosty weather. And yeah, it's, it sort of starts at 45 degrees. And then uh, in the distance, um, I'm looking at the moment through some Scots pine trees. And in the distance, there's a fell called uh, Great Dodd. And that's where my flock of herdwick sheep are hefted. And that's where they've uh, gone to and come back from multiple times a year for, we, we think, a thousand years, maybe four or five thousand years.
2: So, not a lot of flat land.
3: Not a lot of flatland, just a little bit where we make the hay in the valley bottoms. And, yeah, we're incredibly lucky because we have about 30 acres on our little farm of those meadows and there's only 3,000 acres left in the whole of Britain, which is remarkable. You've
2: chosen pieces by Samuel Barber, Michael Nyman and Rachmaninoff, uh, but first music by the French composer Jan Tiersen from his soundtrack to the film Amélie. And I think this reflects the other part of your life, your life as a writer.
3: This piece of music is one of two or three pieces that I play I tend to do most of my writing very early in the morning before daylight or very late at night after the kids have gone to bed and I, I just like something that makes me feel some kind of emotion and uh, I actually do a very odd thing which is I play pieces of music over and over on repeat for maybe three or four hours while I'm writing and it's I don't know some does something to my mind that helps me to do my writing.
2: Well I'm very fascinated and we'll talk later about this by the way that film music in other words music that's allied to a visual image has given you a way into all sorts of music but first I was wondering, before we hear Jan Tiersen's score, whether you could read a little bit from your book, which describes, in musical terms, if you like, your own landscape and what it means to you.
3: Yeah, that would, I would happily do that for you. And, um, yeah, the truth is, when I try to write, I, I, I'm very heavily influenced by music and by film, those two mediums. So, yeah, this is a passage from my new book, English Pastoral, and it's about how, I guess, how I feel now. The more I learn about it, the more beautiful our farm and valley becomes. It pains me to ever be away. I never want to be wrenched from this place and its constant motion. The longer I'm here, the clearer I hear the music of this valley. The Jenny Wren in the undergrowth, the Scots pines creaking and groaning in the wind, the meadow grasses whispering. The distinction between me and this place blurs until I become part of it. And when they set me in the earth here, it will be the conclusion of a lifelong story of return. The I and the me fades away, erodes with each passing day until it is already an effort to remember who I am or why I'm supposed to matter. The modern world worships the idea of the self, the individual. But it's a gilded cage. There's another kind of freedom in becoming absorbed in a little life on the land. In a noisy age, I think perhaps trying to live quietly might be a virtue.
2: Nursery rhyme of another summer, the afternoon, music from Jan Tiersen's soundtrack to Amelie, with the composer playing the piano. James Rebanks, in your book, English Pastoral, you describe how generations of farmers like your grandfather worked in tandem with nature and how that balance was all but destroyed by modern farming practices. Have you changed the way you farm to try and restore that balance?
3: Yeah, hugely. And it's, it's an ongoing journey, really. What I've really discovered over the last five or 10 years is that probably my grandfather or my great grandfather were about 65, 70% right in the way that they managed the land. Not perfect, but there was a lot of good in what they did. So if that's 70% of the picture, the other part is things that we now know that they didn't know. So the science of grazing, uh, the science of soil health and soil microbiology and the science of uh, what's been lost in our ecosystems and what we need to put back, the trees, the hedgerows, the wetlands, the ponds, the, the carbon and organic matter in the soil. All of that stuff was not properly understood in the past. We just didn't have the science for that. So this is partly about going back. It's partly about nostalgia and then partly it's embracing some of the new stuff that's happening. And is that easy? No, of course it's not easy. I'm, I'm really struggling to make a hill farm pay the bills really so we can't always do the perfect thing but we're making it massively better so just to give you an example of this the scale of change you can make happen on a little farm just in the hedgerows the wastelands the edge bits of our farm we think in the next year we can hit 26,000 saplings planted on our farm. Now, if I said to most people, I'm going to plant 26,000 trees, they'd think you'd planted a forest. But actually, that isn't in the productive bits of my farm, that's around the edges. And I'm really, really interested in how I can pack biodiversity and pack carbon, pack all sorts of good things into my farm and keep it productive and keep my family here and pay the bills. And it's become an absolutely fascinating thing and joyous to experience. like like we fenced off some uh, riparian areas the riverbank habitats a few years ago and within months we had an explosion of field falls and uh, within weeks after that we had the barn owls come back to our farm and there's just these wonderful to eat them because <laughs> yeah, you're producing the food what what we've done in most of our landscapes is to make them more efficient but we've stripped out of them all of the food all of the food and the habitat for animals. So I believe wholeheartedly that we have to find ways to share the land better with nature. And I'm trying to put my effort to my work every day where my mouth is, really, and try and make our little farm at 1,100 foot up on the hillside of the Lake District as good as it can be, really. That's, That's the goal.
2: Do you think that as a society, if we want farmers to look after the land, if we want slightly less intensive farming, that we must be prepared to pay more for things like meat?
3: Yes, I do. There's no point sugarcoating that. We've become addicted as a society to food of all kinds, plant and meat-based foods, that are produced in ways which are devastating for wildlife, devastating for the soil, and... um, we spend something like 8% of our household income now on food and we used to only a generation ago that was something like 25 30 33%. So we've been asset stripping the countryside and I'm responsible for what happens on my land on my shift of course but if you're asking me to produce the things that I produce for a quarter of the price of 40 years ago then you're culpable too for what I do on my land we, we Genuinely, are all in this together, and there are some truly horrifying uh, statistics coming out of North America and Canada recently, showing that almost all farmers make a loss if you do the cost properly. And you think, hang on a minute, where's the money going? And we know where the money's going; it's going to the input providers, the people that make the pesticides, make the machinery. So part of the answer is to strip the costs out to do things as naturally as possible, as low input as possible on many farms. And then, of course, the other part of it is that uh, in some cases we have to spend more money. So. we try on our farm now to make a very honest pitch to people that buy things off us that, yes, you're going to pay a little bit more for it. And here's why, because we're going to look after this place properly. You can come and look at it anytime you like. Nothing's hidden. And we're trying to look after things in a balanced, sensible, sustainable way.
2: Yeah. And and what would you say to people who think in order to save the planet, we should stop eating meat and animal products altogether?
3: I think I th- I, I respect their their thoughtfulness i think they may be misdirecting it so uh meat isn't one thing it's different things depending on the production system so if you're talking about stopping eating cheap chicken or pork which is overwhelmingly fed on grain uh or it's fed on things like soil that might have been produced on cleared rainforest then definitely don't eat that meat so you need to be more discerning if you're talking about uh should you eat meat from a regenerative pasture-based system which is uh trapping lots of carbon in the ground because it's well managed it has high animal welfare then i think the answer is yes in moderation let's get back to sort of sensible eating that's connected to our own landscapes it's also misleading because it suggests that the problem is meat and that you can treat that in isolation whereas what we actually know is that most of the biodiversity loss on earth is caused by intensive arable which is plant-based production that can be some of the worst farming on earth it's sterile it's destroying soils it's reliant on plowing which we now know is problematic so it sounds simple and fine to just give up eating meat but it's nowhere near a well thought through solution it needs to be more discerning and more more intelligent than that
2: Mm. You were 21 and Helen was 18 when you met and you've now got four children and she's also from a local farming family. Um, How involved is Helen with daily life on the farm?
3: Helen's Helen's basically the boss. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm the hopeless idiot that writes books. Uh, So, no, the the truth is the best thing that's ever happened to to me in my whole life is that I married Helen. She's incredibly smart. Yeah, what she can't do is nobody's business. Uh, So she runs a lot of the sort of business side of the farm. She looks after our children. Uh, She's an amazingly talented artist. Yeah, uh, and we're we're a team. Um, My next choice is a piece of music from the the movie The Piano by Michael Nyman, and it's it's Helen's favourite piece of music. And if I listen to it, it it almost makes me cry because I realise that I'm punching massively above my weight uh, being married to Helen. (laughs) One for the boss, then. (laughs) One for the boss. Thank you.
2: Michael Nyman performing The Heart Asks Pleasure First from his score for Jane Campion's 1993 film The Piano. What kind of wildlife might you see on your farm now? that probably wouldn't have been there a few years ago?
3: That's a good question. So a good example of that is last in the, a couple of years ago we started to build ponds on the farm. And within a month of building those ponds we had three little uh, egrets, beautiful little white herony birds. And nobody in this valley that I know has ever seen them before. So the speed at which things have come back is amazing. So we have massive amounts of grasshoppers. We have massive amounts of frogs and toads. So it's, it's really exciting. I, I used to think when... Uh, ecologists or environmentalists said that things would come back i sort of thought they meant eventually like a year two years ten years down the line but everything we've done we, we've seen really immediate results within a matter of weeks and that that's that gives you a thrill that's really exciting and i'll never forget standing with my dad and my mom and my kids and watching the barn owl the first time we'd seen it for years on our farm and knowing it was because we'd done something good and looking at each other not really saying it but looking at each other and thinking this is good why did we not do this a long time ago let's do more of this
2: do you ever have time just to simply stand and stare and take in the beauty of where you live
3: yeah um, yeah I, I i do and I, I think there's an idea in academic circles that that rural people didn't see beauty until poets or musicians or whoever taught them to see it i don't think that's true um I I really don't think it's true. I think people always saw beauty. Uh, They just didn't maybe verbalise it or or capture it in ways that we can now see. I can distinctly remember my grandfather utterly in love with this place and utterly, sort of, silently rapturous about how beautiful it was on a sunny night in summer or at the end of Lambing. And that's something I've never lost.
0: Ye gates lift up your heads on high.
1: has written a series of meditations based on the psalms. Today we hear Malcolm's reading of Psalm 24. It's followed by Tenebrae under Nigel Short, singing Bruckner's Christus Factus Est. A response to Psalm 24.
4: And draw me into his eternity? But who can rise up to that holy place? Can all its splendours really be for me? Before that holy fire, I hide my face. My hands were never clean. As for my heart, he'll search out its impurity and trace the sources of its sin in every part and in the whole its weariness and stain. Who can ascend? I cannot even start. But even as I fear my hopes are vain, my Saviour comes. His love revives my hope. I feel him search my wounds, deal with my pain, and offer me again the healing cup. Raising my head, he says, now rise with me. The gates will open for us both. Look up.
0: Here's Christine Getty with a song which she calls Compassion Hymn.
1: Minister of Peachtree, Church of Scotland. Today, she's got a story for us about compassion.
5: A minister was travelling on the London Underground when onto the train shuffled an old woman wearing a threadbare coat to protect her from the bitter winter wind. With one cracked, bony hand, she clutched her thin summer coat tightly around herself. In the other, she carried two plastic bags, stuffed to overflowing with what he assumed were all her worldly possessions. The minister watched, and he wondered, and he looked with pity upon her. What was her story, he wondered. Probably drink. At the next stop, a young, energetic young man strode confidently onto the train, His warm, high fashion clothes offered a stark contrast to the rider from the last stop. As he made his way to his seat, his eyes lingered for just a moment on the old woman. And three stops later, as the train slowed down, he glided by her to the door and disappeared into the crowds on the platform. But on the woman's lap lay the young man's brown leather gloves. The minister observed, I don't know if he was a believer in Christ or not, but I do know this. He saw her need and he responded with compassion while I just sat there. It never occurred to me to give her my gloves. That young man showed compassion in a way I'll never forget. James, in his letter which outlines practical principles for living the Christian life, says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead our response to the needs of others demonstrate to the world our relationship with God and I wonder if we can dare to live and to care with compassion
0: showing compassion and that was Mary Haddow, Minister of Pitlochry Church of Scotland Here's Dave Cliston with a song along the same lines. It's titled, What Jesus Would Have Done.
6: Could I bring your words of comfort? Offer peace where there is war Could I bless the ones who curse me Can I forgive the ones who hurt me most
1: Alan Sorensen is a regular contributor to Pause for Thought on Radio 2. Alan has given us permission to broadcast some of his godspots, and today he asks, what is a real man?
7: It's a man's world, or so they say, with the possible exception of Eddie Azard's dressing room. So that begs the question, what makes us a man then, apart from the extra Y chromosome? Well, if you look at the telly, or read magazines, it's all about appearance, isn't it? Clothes, hair, oh, and attitude, being macho. And yet the man who had the greatest impact on world history didn't look a bit like that. In fact, he was betrayed by his friends, he was spat on, humiliated, and finally executed, not for his own faults, but because of others, us. So I reckon that a real man, or woman for that matter, is someone who cares more about how their life affects other people. And how they look themselves. Big boots blessings to you.
0: We leave you with Geraldine Latte with a song which starts with some words from Psalm 145 The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. The
8: Lord is gracious. She said goodbye